Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. On today's episode, we'll continue our revisitation of old Bond movies by talking about On Her Majesty's Secret Service and License to Kill. I'm joined again by Fred Cobb, who has joined us for all of these and is continuing to do so. And we're also joined by recurring guest Elijah Howard. Elijah, thanks for being here. As always, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Fred, good to see you again. Yep, always happy to be here. And I will say, even though I've loved doing the other two parts with you about the Bond movies, this is the one I'm really here for. Really? I'm excited Absolutely. to talk about it, too, because, like, even I think I think uh, when I the last time Elijah did the podcast and I kind of told him, like, what Fred and I had kind of planned. I don't even know if Fred and I had planned this episode specifically, but oh, I think it was Elijah's idea to, like, kind of group them together. Uh, these movies are obviously kind of noteworthy because On Her Majesty's Secret Service was the only movie in which uh, Bond was portrayed by George Lazenby and a, a first-time actor. And License to Kill was one of only two movies that Timothy Dalton did as Bond. But uh, at the same time, the, the movie, I think the, both Fred and Elijah kind of made the point to me that these movies were maybe a little tonally different than the rest of those Bond, other, all the other Bond movies, and were kind of received, I don't want to say like poorly at the time, but maybe a little differently and, or indifferently, or I don't know, the, the reception of them might have just been a little bit different in the moment because of that. And I think they've aged pretty well, though, as saying that as someone who's just watched them for the first time, but also from what I can tell about how I've saw people talking about them online as I did a little bit of research in advance of the pod. So we're going to talk about both those movies specifically and get into them. But I guess, Elijah, my, my first question to you is, what about these movies really interest you? Because like I said, you kind of like kind of plucked them out when I, we were just talking about possibly having you join for one of these. Uh, what do these two Bond movies kind of mean to you compared to the rest of the franchise? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of different things going for it. I think first and, and most basically, I love, a, I love a good story. And I don't mean that necessarily in terms of the narrative of the films, just in, in terms of how they were made and the stories of how these films came to be. Uh, you know, there's a lot of crazy, you know, behind the scenes stuff in, in, the, in the very long uh, history of Bond. But these uh, two films in particular have just some of the strangest stories, uh, some of the most interesting, some of the most, uh, you know, f- full of pers- personality, the people uh, who are involved in them. And uh, so that's, that's a big part of it to me. Also, I feel like they are they're movies about and featuring turning points um, in a lot of ways, turning points in, in the world, in the world uh, politically and socially turning points in film and the way that things were portrayed and the things, the, the way that things were expected to be portrayed. And, um, you know me, I mean, I love that. I love anything that's, that has that, uh, historical significance to it like that, um, like these films do. So I think, I think for those two reasons, those would be, uh, why they are for me, they're, they're great films. And of course, you know, something that we're obviously probably going to talk about and that you've touched on already is just how, tonally different they are and how i you know i I don't think without these move without these movies you don't get casino royale you don't get craig like those these movies as as maybe one-off and as uh you know mixed bag as they were at the time they are they laid the groundwork for what uh, i think a lot of people our age expect bond to be yeah fred i want to ask you because like i said timothy dalton did two movies the other being the living daylights and when i was asking you hey if we're only going to talk about like two of these three movies which should they be and you said the living daylights might be my favorite bond movie but like i think license to kill might even be more interesting to talk about what about these movies really interest you and kind of brought you to that conclusion so both the Dalton movies and the one lazenby 
movie, I think, share the commonality that when those were made, a lot of assembly line, an assembly line mindset had kind of crept into the Bond franchise, where you had five movies in which Sean Connery had played the part, and they, they had kind of figured out what they wanted to do with it, right? Spectre was featured in most of them in one way or another. Uh, there was always some megalomaniac villain involved with some grand scheme that Bond had to somehow foil by the end. And On Her Majesty's Secret Service just kind of flipped that whole thing on its head, where it wasn't so much about the crazy plan, even though that was part of it too, but also the romantic aspect that up until that point had really just been kind of this mindset that the Bond girl was just a disposable object object for Bond to have some fun with and then throw away by the time the next movie rolled around. And the same thing is true of the two Timothy Dalton ones. Roger Moore played Bond in seven movies over a time span of, I believe, 12 years it was. Uh, he was almost 60 when A View to a Kill was made. <laughs> And the comparison, I think, between Octopussy and The Living Daylights especially, which are only four years apart, is absolutely insane. And I think the reason why License to Kill is the better one to discuss over The Living Daylights is even though The Living Daylights is arguably the more enjoyable one and has some more traditional Bond aspects, especially the sense of humor that they've really cut out entirely in License to Kill almost, I think that deviation from what was the standard really just makes it the more fascinating one to discuss because, as Elijah already mentioned, this is the template that really led into the Daniel Craig era um, in the mid-2000s. And even though Timothy Dalton was only around for two movies, I think his legacy has strengthened a lot over the past years because of that and how accepted this take on Bond has become as a more violent and more aggressive character. Yeah, I... I think that's a good point. Just jumping off point for me just to get into on Her Majesty's Secret Service because I'm not one to like opine on some big picture thoughts like that. I'm not quite as scholar to the extent that Fred or Elijah are in these movies, but I think uh, a lot of what Fred said about it, some of these kind of breaking the mold in their own way is like very, very apparent early on in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which as we've already mentioned was the one film in which George Lazenby appeared in, which we're going to get into that a lot because that's, I mean, I really didn't know a whole lot about that till like a week ago, the whole, his whole entire story. And I think it's pretty fascinating. And, but Fred kind of already touched on it a little bit, but, uh, you know, On Her Majesty's Secret Service starts with Bond, like seeing a woman about to commit suicide on a beach and rescuing her, it turns out that that woman, her name's uh, Tracy DiVincenzo, her father is a guy named Mark Ange Draco, who is a European crime boss who summons Bond by acting like he's kidnapping him, but instead actually wants him to marry him and control his daughter and get her in line, basically. Uh, <laughs> yeah, these movies broke the molds in some ways, but uh, not not every character was, uh, was exactly the most forward-thinking. And... He and and Bond actually sees an opportunity here because he sees Draco as someone that might have a line on iconic Bond villain Ernst Blofeld. So he decides he's going to kind of just go along with this whole entire routine. When it's kind of wild is that like for I think I think I wrote it on my uh, I wrote, wrote it down in my notes. It's not until the hour and nineteen minute mark of this movie that Bond and the villain acknowledge each other face to face as. As foes, I think he sees uh, Blofeld once before then, but it's not till like the hour and nineteen minute mark till they drop that facade and actually acknowledge each other, which is kind of crazy. Because I mean, at least in some of the Bond movies we've talked about the last couple weeks uh, or in the last couple episodes, Fred Bond even goes out of his way, like you know, at the beginning of Goldfinger, just to like even to talk to Goldfinger, like in the first like five mm-hmm. minutes. I mean, it's a uh, 
it's something where he confronts him pretty early. And here it's, you're just on this other odd kind of story for a lot of it. Uh, the other thing that I found pretty fascinating that I think kind of goes into, it was the first time where I re- really struck me more so, and I'm sure if I rewatch it, I'd pick up on more things. But I think the one moment in Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service that made me think, oh man, this is actually kind of, could get really dark and feel like much different tonally was when he actually first acknowledges that, oh, I might actually have feelings for this woman. And not that in that moment I necessarily believed him, but that meant one of two things. One, that Bond was actually going to have feelings for a woman when, as Fred said, these women had been mostly disposable. Or two, like he was really going to lead this woman on hardcore more so than he did in other movies and then totally break her heart. And if it was the former, then she's probably going to die because I just assumed that like, we know there's not really like a whole lot of movies where the same Bond girls like kind of floating from movie to movie. So at that point, I'm like, wow, this is like actually like having like, these are like some really high stakes. But I guess I'll, before we get back to that, I guess I'll start by asking you, Elijah, what does it mean that this movie is as good as it is? What does it say about the entire operation that this movie works as well as it does when they cast a man that had never been an actor before as the lead? Yeah, I mean, so to really answer that question, you have to kind of understand what the producers, what Albert Broccoli and what, Harry what, Saltzman? what Ian, oh, yeah, Saltzman and what Ian Fleming even really, uh, you know, what they looked for. Um, in actors to play Bond. And, you know, I, there's a great story about Sean Connery when uh, he auditioned for the role. Because, you know, Sean Connery was also not really an actor. He was, he was obviously more involved in that world and that lifestyle than George Lazenby was. But he certainly wasn't really an actor um, when he came to the role of James Bond. And I think they, they I want to say they, you know, read some, they read some audition lines for him and then, you know, they weren't necessarily convinced and they said, okay, you know, you can go, we'll give you a call back later. And, um, they watched him leave and they watched him, they watched Sean Connery walk out of the building. And I think, I think it was Ian Fleming said that he walked like a Panther and that was why they cast him. They cast him because not because of necessarily his acting prowess, but because of the aura that he exuded and I think that says a lot about George Lazenby because we and I, you know, I don't want to get too into the weeds on his history, maybe just yet. But he was not only not an actor, but he wasn't a model. He wasn't he wasn't anything. He was a well, he, was, he was a model. A, well, he was. I mean, he was a he was a model. He was a he was a I would say he was a drifter, really. That's yeah. what I, that's how I would describe him. <laughs> um, he was a drifter. And, you know, there was there was something manicured about um about about Connery, and you compare that to Lazenby, who had, you know, had he had style and he had sex appeal, but he was he wasn't the same kind of uh, you know rugged picturesque as as Connery was, and so to make that to to consciously make that decision to bring on Lazenby, I think that's a big big step and a big. Um, you know, implicit sign of, of, uh, you know, a shifting idea in what Bond could be. Um, and I think Lazenby is a, is a great embodiment of that being, uh, less of a, less, uh, he, he's more uncut. I would say he's, he's more, he's, he's rougher. Um, he's rougher in a lot of regards. And I think that, uh, you know, that decision to cast him, to bring him on knowing all that, obviously, they didn't quite know the full extent of it because 
you know, that, that, that ended up being sort of why he walked away from bond later on. But I feel like, um, you know, that, that decision to bring him on was a big sign of daring on, on the part of Albert Broccoli and uh, Harry Saltzman. Well, I have, I have a specific question for Fred, but before I do that, I want to ask you, Elijah, as you're wa- just in general, as you're watching it, like if you didn't know anything else about it, would you think like, wow, this guy is like a super raw actor and it's like really bringing this movie down? Or what are your thoughts on like his acting ability as you as you watch this movie? I don't know. I mean, I think he's I think he's I think he's great. I think, you know, he maybe he doesn't quite have the same comedic timing as Connery had. But uh, and and to be clear, there's obviously some amount of retrospective uh, you know, so, some some different optics here because I was not alive to you know experience the Connery films and then go into seeing Lazenby for the first time. I've already come into this movie, you know, as a child or as a you know as a young adult with preconceived notions about what this what the series is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, it's hard for me to say specifically, but I mean, generally speaking. No, I don't. I don't think it shows quite in the way that some people at the time may have said it did. You know? Right. I went. I went back and I like. I looked at like a lot of the reviews and a lot of people were like kind of critical of him. And I. I watched it and I thought like. I mean, well, none of the Bond movies ever like. They're not for the most part. They're not casting like you know Daniel Day Lewis as Bond. Though I would sure I'd watch the hell out of Daniel Day Lewis if he wanted to be Bond, even at sixty four years old or whatever he is now. But at the same time, like Sean Connery was an, an actor that was like nominated for an Oscar. Daniel Craig's done a lot of different things, and this guy just hadn't done a lot. But like, I didn't find myself thinking like, "Wow, like this guy is like noticeably not an actor compared to everyone else." But the question I have for you, Fred, is that when we were talking, I think on the first Bond podcast we did, you kind of gave me a little bit of a rundown of the history of where they got Bond girls from. And how they really didn't put a lot of thought into it sometimes. And they might just be like, go get us the Miss Universe from last year. Or go get us the Miss Poland from that year. Or something along the lines of that. And it was Mm -hmm. clear they didn't put a lot of effort into it. And I think it's kind of interesting that uh, the movie in which they literally have a Bond that had never acted before, they actually cast a Bond girl that was probably more of an actor than any other one up until that point had possibly been in a way in Diana Rigg. Uh, how do you think that feel free to give me your thoughts on George Lazenby as an actor, but how do you think he probably benefited from having someone like her in there with him? Yeah, I was going to say, let me talk about Lazenby first because yeah. that'll feed a little bit into how I feel about uh, Diana Rigg in this part. Mm-hmm. So I think what really helps Lazenby is that he looks visibly uncomfortable in quite a few scenes. And it's <laughs> very hard to tell whether that is a deliberate acting choice or just because he wasn't really uh, all that familiar with uh, how to do his mark work yet. <laughs> yeah, but the fascinating thing is that's the kind of character that Bond is in this movie. There are a few times where he is in genuine trouble, and the big one is probably when he royally fucks up on the mountain because he once again couldn't keep it in his pants, <laughs> and he becomes way too arrogant, and he goes to uh, not just one but two different girls' rooms. Uh, <laughs> he uses the exact the same, same lines. I laughed a lot at that. <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious, but he also thinks, oh, great, my disguise is so good that nobody's <laughs> onto me, and I can just do whatever I want up here, essentially. And that's the kind of arrogance that Connery displayed a lot, too, but he never really got caught for it. And uh, this is just the kind of stuff where you see that they try to do something a bit different here. Mm-hmm. The Lazenby incarnation of Bond doesn't get away with everything. Sometimes he ends up trapped, and sometimes he is in genuine danger of actually... Uh, getting off. And I know we talked about this in Goldfinger too, where he actually uh, is on the table and the laser is approaching him. And that is the one real time, I think, in the Connery era 
where they deliberately staged a scene where he's in actual danger. Um, and in this movie, it just happens a whole bunch of times. And the other thing is because obviously James Bond wasn't really intended in the Connery movies to be this guy who commits to a relationship. That is also not a role that Bond is especially comfortable in. And this is really the first time he has to confront the possibility that he might no longer want to be a spy because that's not the kind of life you can really live if you're in a committed relationship or married to someone. Um, and I think Lazenby, as someone who didn't have those acting chops yet, portrays that a lot more convincingly than Connery ever could have done. Really? I, I would say, I mean, I would say so. I, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, of course, that Lazenby spent a decent amount of time uh, in the movie wearing a kilt and Connery is the actual Scottish guy and uh, <laughs> he never got to wear one. Uh, but, but I think... Lazenby was a good choice for the, those kinds of scenes. And I think Diana Rick, who a lot of people nowadays, of course, know as uh, Olena Tyrell from Game of Thrones, um, I think that she was somebody who paired up nicely with him because, again, a lot of those scenes in the beginning where they first get to know each other, you're not really sure if uh, it's really going to build into this serious relationship. And then when Draco suggests that really sort of odd deal where he offers Bond money to marry his daughter. <laughs> to Bond's credit, he says no initially. Like, he's not interested in money. And then, of course, once Draco offers information on Blofeld, he's all ears. Um, but then, of course, once they actually do get to know each other better and they start falling for each other, it seems genuine. It really does. Like, I got a sense that this is actually a relationship that might work under different circumstances. And of course, it doesn't work out. But I was really hoping in the end, when the wedding happens, yeah. Like, like really thought I those crazy kids had a chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see them together. Like, why not? Drive up into the sunset, be happy together. And of course, it doesn't quite work out. But I think they genuinely get to a point in the movie where that is something that I found credible. And I think that's pretty impressive for James Bond and a Bond girl. Yeah, you know. I think it's funny you mentioned that because I again, I, again, I, as I mentioned in one of the other podcasts, like it, it, it's really not something anyone's that interested in hearing. If I'm to like come on here and just talk about the, these movies' treatment of women, I think it's like well documented. It's well tread ground. There's only so much thing, only so much as novel to say about it. But one thing I found myself appreciating as I watched this was like they at least like made an effort to make it seem like they spent some time together and. It's something like in the we'll talk about it a little bit in License to Kill, but when he hooks up with the the agent there after they've known each other for like five minutes, it's like, come on, this seems like a little a little ridiculous. And there's nothing wrong with people like having casual sex, but like at the same time, like they're trying to they're trying to portray that woman as like someone that like is like they're trying to like have their cake and eat eat it too, and like make it seem like she's like a badass career woman that's like probably kicked more ass than like most Bond girls had up until the the point that point in License to Kill. Though I would say Tracy actually holds herself holds her own pretty well in some of the fight scenes and on her majesty's secret service uh but like it was like all right well i kind of got that feeling too by the end like yeah and, and it's funny like you just have different expectations for like a bond movie versus a rom-com because i always complain on this podcast and the rom-coms how i don't think they're spending enough time together and huh. we're just supposed to buy that they're in love with each other but here like i'm like at least they gave us the montage of them doing things together over the course of what could have only been a couple of weeks whereas like if all i get is a montage and a rom-com i complain about it but here at least there's the implication that they got to know each other and there's some decently written scenes too between them and i just kind of i kind of bought it elijah what did you think about just the handling of like that relationship and how it like it was like almost a bigger part of the movie than like him him actually tracking bad guys for like half of the movie yeah i mean i think it's it just comes down to what the central conceit of the movie was and i think 
I think both you and Fred have kind of talked about that it's at the end of the day, this is not a movie about Blofeld. And, you know, I, I maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. I think that is kind of funny because I do. I mean, I love Donald Pleasance, but I do think that Telly, Telly Savalas actually is one of the, is one of the better, uh, you know, interpretations of Blofeld. But nevertheless, the movie's really the movie's really not about him or his plan. The, the movie is more about this relationship. Um, and I, you know, it's a very interesting kind of coalescence of fact of of circumstances because, you know, and this goes for Bond movies prior to On Her Majesty's Secret Service and pretty much every Bond film afterwards, uh, which is that Bond girls a lot of the time were just women who were popular, uh, you know, be it uh, centerfold models or, you know, Pageants. sprightly young actresses who had been in a couple of things, you know, here or there. But, the, you know, that goes for everybody from Ursula Andress to uh, – uh, uh, you know, I'm going to blank on her name. The woman from um, somebody back me up on this. The woman from the world is not the world is not enough. Denise um, Richards. Denise Richards. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. Denise Christmas Richards. Jones. There yeah, we go. exactly. Yeah. So you know, it, that's and you can obviously see there is some there's varying quality uh, when those when that kind of choice is made when uh, <laughs> when an actress is cast literally just because of uh, you know they're they're the, the sex figure of the time. Um, I think this is an instance where these factors all worked out so well at the moment because the people who made this movie and the book itself, I mean, on Her Majesty's Secret, this is one of the more accurate adaptations from the books. And it is a book where it is more focused on Bond and on his relationship with this woman. And I think the filmmakers knew that when they when they when, uh, you know, Peter Hunt and Richard Maybaum, uh, you know, sat down to make this movie. Um, I think they knew that that was that's what it was about. And I think they knew that they wanted to get a stronger, uh, you know, female actress uh, than perhaps they had had previously. And it just so happened that at the time, at the moment they were making this, Diane Rigg had just blown up in popularity and was fresh off a contract from uh, the Avengers on television from playing a badass secret agent woman on TV for three years. So, Mm. I mean, she was fairly well established at that time, uh, you know, already having that kind of persona. And I think it was, it's just, it's a perfect storm of the actress being, you know, the right actress at the time for the right role. Um, and I, I don't know if that's something that, you know, with the mentality, like I said, with the mentality that they have behind, you know, how they choose actors for these movies, where it's probably less about the line reading and more about the the look and the chemistry and those kind of things. I think it's just, you know, it's just stellar that you end up uh, with this circumstance where you have a Bond who is kind of uh, trepidatious, a little, you know, a little bit uh, uncertain, a little bit rough, and you have a Bond woman uh, in, in Tracy who is who is much more confident, who is 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 that kind of woman who is going to, you know, when the shooting starts, she, you know, picks up a glass bottle and like, breaks <laughs> it off on a table and threatens a guy with it. Like she's not, you know, she's not going to get, you know, hoisted over somebody's shoulder and, you know, thrown off into the other room kicking and screaming like she's she's going to fight. And I think that was, uh, you know, ending up with the actors as they did in the circumstance and particularly uh, Diane Rigg um, was just, you know, luck or genius or both. Yeah. And she's, she's, and I think she, she, I mean, she obviously proves herself to be, I mean, a legitimately good actress in the movie. And I think obviously, like I mentioned earlier, I just thought their story kind of lent the movie like 
a, a, a lot of the weight that it that it carries with it and we've we've already kind of mentioned a lot about this how yeah these movies are different tonally but i think one thing that maybe sets this apart in a different way from license to kill which as you guys say did does away with a lot of the humor that you see in a lot of these other movies is that this movie is like legitimately hilarious and all in a lot of parts and goes out of its way to like have like all of these kind of funny one-liners fred does you've, you've seen this multiple times but like does that humor like work for you or i mean it's unconventional i think and kind of feels different from what i've seen in at least some of the Bond movies, I think others do kind of have that same kind of humor, but there's like a lot of different moments like that where it's just like he's saying like – he looks like the scene's about to end, but then he just throws in another joke. Like he's branched off or the uh, – maybe he should have been gift-wrapped or something like that. Or even like I think I think he's making like a, a joke about his uh, hoping not to be impotent when he's having sex in the second time in the night and he tells the <laughs> other girl, you better be about being an inspiration. Do, do you get a kick out of all that and how do you think the movie does and kind of weaving in humor throughout? I I think it strikes that balance very well because on one hand it really is that tragic romance between Mm -hmm. Bond and Tracy but a lot of what happens up in that clinic in the Alps is genuinely hilarious. I mean it's a totally bonkers plan that Blofeld is pursuing up there and there's also a decent amount of time dedicated to him trying to prove his ancestry and showing off with his earlobes that were cut (laughs) off. It's just like these little things that are just kind of insane but Oh, one, one other thing that before I, before I before you keep going, I just thought it was hilarious was that I don't know if it was that I talked to you or I read it in a review because I watched in the, uh, the Living Daylights, even though we're not really talking about it as much here. I watched it last weekend, and one of the things I, I might have read in someone else's maybe it was your letterbox review or someone else's how one of the cool things about that movie is that it just like had lower stakes. It was like this guy that just wanted to like be a middleman that made some money off of selling some mm-hmm. drugs, which felt a lot different from a lot of other Bond movies. And and for like the first hour and a half of this movie, it was like, I'm like, oh, this is kind of <laughs> interesting. There's like another movie where it's like, it seems like the stakes really maybe aren't going to be that high. And then I just like cracked up when like there's the obligatory scene where Blofeld has to explain his plan. And it's basically just to make every species in the world go extinct. Yeah. <laughs> and and like, I, that's almost a direct quote. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. They're not, this one isn't low stakes, even if I thought it might be headed there. He wants total world extinction. Okay, I'm here for it. Whatever. I just thought that was like very funny because my expectations had been kind of calibrated differently up until that point. And it's just like everything's already super goofy in that uh, ski lodge or whatever. And then his plan is even goofier than that. I was going to say, I mean, like this, I feel like people assume that when you watch something like Awesome Powers, what they're reaching for is something like, you know, Goldfinger or, you know, Dr. No, because there's so many um, you know, imagistic references, but I think the humor specifically is, is all referential to this film. I think if you ask the directors of those, uh, of those satires, you know, which bond film they probably had the deepest attachment to, it's probably this one where it is the least, uh, you know, the least straightforward, uh, you know, bad guy is going to, you know, blow up the world and whatever. And it's just a film that takes these so many detours, uh, you know, in the narrative to these funny moments and the plot itself, like you said, just kind of being ridiculous. And it's like, yeah, I think it's a great, I think it's a, you know, the humor is perhaps unexpected, but it's really good. Yeah, do you agree with that? And I, really, and I, I mean, I also really appreciate how, again, how he's supposed to be this really sort of stiff and boring uh, guy who is uh, studying Blofeld's ancestry. But after five minutes in a room with a bunch of girls, he really just can't keep the charade up anymore because that's just not who Bond is. <laughs> so um, obviously he uh, pretty much, I mean, he still has to keep up his cover around Blofeld, but he immediately starts visiting them in their rooms. And 
Yeah, it's funny. I, I, you, you just made the joke about you, you just used the word stiff, and there's like four jokes in here about the word stiff in the movie. Of <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, again, it, it's very enjoyable that they uh, actually were able to fuse those two fundamentally different tones together. And uh, yeah, like it's a genuinely hilarious movie. And even though I think Elijah was correct when he said that Blazenby's comic timing isn't necessarily as good as Connery's. Uh, Again, the fact that he looks uncomfortable in a lot of these scenes makes them even more hilarious in a lot of ways. Yeah, and a lot of these, and, a lot of, and it's just funny watching him be uncomfortable around a lot of these women. Like they're they're kind of funny, and and then it seems like he kind of gets the hang of it, and he's like feeling himself a little too much when he seduces the second woman with the exact same lines, and then it it gets him in trouble. And I had actually written that down to say too before you guys brought it up, and it's like it was kind of funny to see his uh, horniness actually like come back to bite him, where it's really not mm-hmm. the case, and like. Uh, noticed the other movies and it was just kind of like a fun way of upending your expectations for what these movies are going to be uh what, what did you guys think of the action in this i mean like some the, the, the skiing felt pretty uh unique unlike something i'd seen in many movies that were took place prior to 1969 it seemed like they they kind of went for it in some different ways or the or the or the or the, the luge or whatever you want to call that other thing yeah i mean i um i think a lot of that owes to to peter hunt to the director who you know, I'd previously worked as an editor uh, on some of the other James Bond films, and I think Albert Broccoli basically said, "Well, you you know, you were you were good to work with. Let's let's try throwing you a movie." This was his first movie that he ever directed. I mean, he'd been working as an editor for quite a while up until that point, but um, he had never really directed a movie. And I think, um, in in some ways, it shows, and I mean that in a good way. Uh, he was he wasn't bound by a lot of the expectations of conventions that you know, had previously kind of been a part of the Bond series. Um, I think you go and you compare the action in this movie to something like the action in, uh, you know, even, even in, um, sorry, you only live twice, you know, just the previous film, which is two years earlier, you know, you compare the action in this movie to the action in that one. And that, that movie's action is a little, little stiff. It's a little, you know, there's not there's not a lot of motivation behind it, um, and you compare it to this movie, and I think Peter Hunt just threw threw everything at it because there was no there he, you know there was no playbook for him, uh, and I think you see that even right at the opening scene. You know, you you have the scene on the beach, and there, it's, it's a very dramatic moment where he runs into the water to you know stop Tracy from drowning herself, and then um, you know is immediately threatened by these goons. And the fight that ensues is extremely cutty for the time for James Bond. I mean, there's all these little quick insert shots of, you know, him throwing guys over, the, you know, over his shoulder and, you know, launching them into, you know, debris on the beach and, you know, punching them. And it's just very, it was very aggressive. Um, and I think that, you know, they keep up that tempo throughout the action in the film. I think the, the, uh, the raid on the the mountain resort, you know, it's another great, just uh, lots of energy. It's funny you you, you mentioned the, just the raid on the resort because I was thinking like, oh, when, 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 had they done anything like that to that point in these movies? And I haven't seen all of them, but I was thinking like Fred, we talked about from Russia with Love, and they have it at the the, the gypsy compound or whatever. There's like that big mm-hmm. scene there, but I actually think I preferred the choreography and just how this one played out to that. And like I, I felt like I was able to like kind of follow everything that was going on around that house. I already knew what that house was like at that point. And it feel like it, it, it went in and out a lot of a lot of the crevices of that, and used a lot of details. Whereas, like there there were parts of it that I enjoyed in that scene in From Russia with Love, but it kind of felt like a little more just chaotic and harder to follow. And so that's why I really like this. Did you have any other thoughts on the action in uh, this one, Fred? 
Yeah, since we're already uh, comparing action scenes in different movies, I yeah. made the point very explicitly in our uh, discussion about Live and Let Die about how much it hurt the boat chase that there was no music in it. And mm. for this particular one, you had a great theme by John Barry, uh, the place when they're chasing Bond down the mountain. And I really think it provides that whole scene with even more energy. It really just shows how much more uh, uh, exciting uh, you can make a scene just by having the right composer and uh, that person uh, figuring out how to uh, amplify that sequence. And the other thing I found very cool is Blofeld actually takes a very active role in that pursuit. Like, mm -hmm. as soon as he gets the call that Bond escaped, like, he immediately, like, gets, uh, jumps up from his chair and he himself goes out there on skis uh, chasing him down. And I think it's kind of cool that the villain actually takes a more active physical role in that sense. Up until that point, um, you look at somebody like Goldfinger, for example, or Dr. No, or even the Blofeld from You Only Live Twice. Uh, they were mostly just sort of confined to their office or their lair, and they really only had a big showdown with Bond uh, near the end. Uh, but this Blofeld, uh, he isn't, I mean, too cool for school uh, in that sense that he just sits around and lets his minions do all the work. And he himself is actually going after Bond. And I thought that was actually a pretty uh, cool thing that spoke very well for uh, this version of Blofeld as opposed to the one in You Only Live Twice. Yeah. And they hired, you know, they hired again, they hired the right actor for it because as much as I love Donald Pleasance as that, you know, brooding, turned chair, you know, evil uh, Blofeld, I think you get Telly Savalas, who is a guy who was like, who's in the Dirty Dozen prior to this movie mm -hmm. coming out. And he's clearly a guy who is, you know, he's not exactly the most fit dude ever. Like he's not, you know, some ripped, <laughs> you know, chunky guy, but he is, he is confident in his, in his physicality. Um, and I think that makes for a very unique, at the time, a very unique Bond villain who, yeah, is is uh, not only willing but capable of of going down the slopes after Bond, you know, himself. Uh, you know, he has the presence of a take it into your own hands kind of villain, which um, I think is uh, was was great for the series at the time. Yeah. Before you wrap up, guys, I want to ask you about George Lazenby and you know his his decision not to continue as Bond and what effect that might have had on the franchise because I, I did I don't know if you guys ended up doing it or not I did go back and I watched that documentary Becoming Bond it's kind of weird and then it like it only devotes the last 10 minutes of the movie to his decision which is kind of like the most interesting part I would think about his story uh but I, I was just kind of thinking about it in terms of like, so you could probably have a whole hour about talking about what it means to turn down the chance to be James Bond for 10 years. But I guess I was thinking about it more in terms of like the effect it had going forward. Cause we kind of talked about how, you know, his relationship with, uh, with Tracy, you're almost kind of seeing that a little bit once the Craig movies start, I guess. I mean, uh, I haven't seen a ton of like, I haven't seen, I've only seen some of the movies that happened in the, the 35 years or whatever between the two. But I mean, I, it felt like what they did with, uh, Vesper, right? What they, mm -hmm. what they kind of did with her between those first two movies and the, the, how she stuck with him somewhat in quantum of solace. I would think if I remember quantum of solace correctly, there's, it seems like there was kind of the potential to have something similar going on. If Lisenby had come back, I don't know if you end this movie the way you do, and then just don't mention Tracy in the next one. And, he could have been Bond for six more movies after this, and he just turned it down. Do you do you guys think the the movies that Roger Moore ultimately starred in, like how different do you think they feel if they star George Lazenby? I I mean it's hard. I think you know as to your kind of your first point. I mean he he made the decision to George Lazenby made the decision to quit 
the role, I think, you know, well, after production had ended. So I don't know that they would have, you know, changed the ending. If the ending would have been any different, um, had they known ahead of time, you know, that was clearly, they didn't, I don't think they thought that he was going to quit when, when production ended and yet they still made that decision. Oh, and, and one other thing I saw, it, it was his decision. I don't know if I saw that. I might've seen this on like Amazon's x-ray feature or something. He made the decision to actually do the, for them. He wanted them to use the take where Bond is seen crying, which had never happened up to that point. That was like a thing that Lazenby like fought for apparently. Oh, I mean, I'm not sure about, it. I just yeah. mean that, I mean the decision to, you know, for him to, to yeah, not yeah, 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 yeah. continue, but yeah, I mean, he, I think, I don't, I don't know if it's, you know, one of those what if situations where it's very hard to know what the outcome would have been because of how much George Lazenby and, you know, the reception to on her majesty's secret service kind of shaped the way that early Roger Moore films were done. Oh, okay. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, you had diamonds are forever, which came out pretty shortly after on her majesty's secret service, which is a, a very poor attempt at course correction in my opinion. But, uh, then you get into live and let die and man with the golden gun in 73 and 74, you know, Roger Moore's first films. And they are so, so tonally different from on her majesty's secret service in, in pretty much every way. And it's hard not to look at those movies and see, you know, that they were, that the producers, that, uh, you know, everybody involved was a little bit gun shy from the, you know, if, you, if you'll accept the pun, <laughs> a bit gun shy from the reception <laughs> on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That, you know, that movie, they had been going up this roller coaster. They were like so at a high. And then they took all these risks on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. They took a risk with the actor they hired. They took a risk with the kind of story they were going to tell. They took a risk with the ending. And then it, it didn't quite pan out, I think, the way they expected. And so they totally went back to the drawing board for, for Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun. And I think, uh, you know, it's hard to say what the how those films would have looked with George Lazenby, because I don't think there's a world in which those films exist. If not for George Lazenby and his decisions, right, right, I, right. you know, I think those would be drastically different films. If George Lazenby had stuck with it and had brought the same kind of attitude that he had to on her Majesty's secret service, if he brought that to the, the succeeding, uh, uh, Roger Moore films and, well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, do you have, do you have any other thoughts when you just think about that? What if Fred, I think eventually you would have gotten to a point maybe where Lazenby's inexperience as an actor might have caught up with him. As I was saying earlier, I think, again, he was the perfect guy for this particular version of Bond in this particular scenario, uh, where you have a movie that is really defined by its romantic aspects and the tragedy at the end. But I don't know if Lazenby in different scenarios would have been as successful. So I think history will treat him very kindly as the right kind of bond in that situation. But I'm not sure if he would have ever received that kind of validation if he had kept on playing the role. I just don't think that was really in the cards for him. That makes sense. I, 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 I can see that. But I, I did go back and like watch because as I was watching it the first time, I, I, I knew that he never played Bond again. And that he wasn't as experienced of an actor, but I didn't realize he had literally never acted before as I was watching the movie. So after I learned that, I, I went back and watched certain scenes, and I thought he did fine in the scene where he has to 
cry over her dead body. Like, I thought I was like, it didn't seem like someone that like literally had zero acting chops at all. But though I can acknowledge that like, who knows if you put him in a lot of different circumstances, maybe it's not going to go as well every other time around. Uh, Elijah, do you have any other final thoughts that you wanted to touch on about on Her Majesty's Secret Service before we move on to License to Kill? You know, I, th- I think we've mostly hit on it. I think just in regards to this, you know, to the idea of George Lazenby as, as a non-actor, I've come to not be a big fan of that term because of people like George Lazenby, where it's like every, everybody's an actor. It's just not everybody's in movies. You know, that's the thing. And huh. I think you, you have obviously much more inaccessible uh, opportunities to see something like that at play in, in movies like, uh, you know, directors like Robert Downey Sr. and Robert Bresson, who who made entire careers off of making movies with casts of people who had, you know, never stepped foot on a set before. And those movies have varying degrees of success. But I think this is a great movie to reach for when you want to show somebody it's like just because somebody's never been on a set up until a point doesn't mean that if you drop them on a set they're not going to do well and it's like somebody's capacity to act is not linked to whether or not they had great training or whether or not they you know had an apprenticeship at a at a stage theater somewhere or a a lot of people's capacity to act just comes from from the attitude. So what you're saying, Elijah, is that in ten years if you've if you moved on up in your career and you're a filmmaker that you'll cast me in a movie? Oh, of course. Thank yeah. you. That's, I, 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 I'm, I'm getting you on the record for that now. And I'll keep renewing the SoundCloud subscription just so we don't lose that, just so I can hold you to it. Uh, <laughs> Fred, Fred, any other, any final thoughts on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Yeah, I think uh, both on Her Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever really validate Connery's decision to leave after you only live twice. Um, <laughs> I, I really, I really do think that it was a great time for the Bond franchise to try something different. And the fact that there was a serious amount of backsliding involved in Diamonds Are Forever, where they really just took all the worst aspects that had crept into the Connery era and doubled down on those, um, really just shows that it was time for a change. And I think just based on that, that is why On Her Majesty's Secret Service is remembered very fondly by a lot of Bond fans nowadays. Yeah, I'll just say it's a lot of fun. I and I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Like I, I was kind of a little ignorant of these movies before I started talking to Elijah and Fred about them, and I just thought like, oh, these must have just been bad, and that's why he only did it once. And I didn't really know much about Lazen B's story, and I just, I don't know, I, I just like thoroughly enjoyed it, and I liked how unconventional the story was, and how I mean, in a lot of these movies, like you're, I'm having to like wait, rewind a couple times because there's always like a, a whole scene where there's like a big exposition dump where you really find out all the mechanics of the evil plan or this or that. That. And I don't know, I was able to like sit back and just like kind of let this one wash over me in its own weird way. And I really appreciated that. And I kind of enjoyed everything about it, even getting to delve into the more serious parts of James Bond having feelings. It just felt it was very unique and it stands apart in its own really special way, which I guess License to Kill probably does too. So we're going to talk about that now. License to Kill is the uh, 1989 entry into this, into the James Bond franchise. It starred uh, Timothy Dalton, as we already mentioned, his second outing and last outing as Bond. It's it largely takes place in uh, my my corner of the country, uh, in uh, or actually a lot of it's just outside the country. But it starts out in Florida, in Key West, as James and his uh, CIA recurring friend in these movies, Felix Leiter, are on their way to his wedding. When they learn that, wait, we need to take a detour because we have a chance to capture a drug lord named Franz Sanchez. That. Felix has been on to for a while, so they capture him with a pretty cool scene in which James, like, hooks one helicopter to another, and they go on to the wedding, but then Sanchez bribes his way out of jail by bribing a cop, 
and are bribing a DEA agent, I guess, and he, he escapes and sends some of his henchmen after Felix and Felix's new wife, and they kill Felix's new wife, and they wound Felix uh, very seriously via shark attack. Uh, yep, that's as as odd as it sounds. That's what happens. And then James obviously takes it very personally. He was the best man at Felix's wedding, and he wants to go after him, but uh, MI6 isn't so fond of that. So we get a movie in which James Bond is kind of a uh, he's uh, rebelling against uh, Her Majesty's Secret Service, and uh, he's going out on his own and going rogue and having to navigate his way through uh the caribbean and south florida to uh try and track down sanchez but he's also being uh tracked down by benicio del toro at the same time and uh i i i guess fred uh i'll start by asking you as we kind of already hinted at earlier like license to kill it's it's almost it's maybe more serious in a way that it seems like some of these other movies aren't it it's uh fairly i don't know it, it, it's it's there's a lot of forward momentum throughout this movie it's pretty fast moving and it doesn't take a lot of time for those light moments we just had so much fun talking about is there anything else though that really kind of makes this movie stand apart for you i think it really strengthens bond as a character actually and i think this is where it helps that i think timothy dalton is actually a really good actor uh he's a he was classically trained on the stage, like he was uh, part of a Shakespeare troupe back in the 1970s when he first started his career. So he is somebody who is very good into diving some of Bond's motivations when he isn't on the job. And to be very clear, he isn't on the job here. He actually physically attacks M to escape and then uh, does his own thing down in South America to track down Sanchez. And I think what's fascinating is that Bond, at least in this particular version, um, Loyalty to his country really comes second, and loyalty to his friends comes first. And that's not really something that we have seen him do before. And I think it's kind of interesting that he goes up against a villain who has, who has a very similar set of values in a way. He is also somebody who is extremely loyal to the people who uh, stand by him and uh, who work with him. And obviously, they use it for very different purposes. Um, so that's why I think the Bond versus... Sanchez's combination is one of the more fascinating ones in the entire Bond franchise because he doesn't go up once again against a megalomaniac who wants to take over the world, but a more realistic villain in that sense who he likely never would have actually encountered if he had been on the job for MI6, but because he happened to uh, personally offend Bond in the most serious way imaginable, he goes after him and it just shows that uh, that is really the kind of character that Dalton wanted to play here and the writers wanted him to be, which is very different than what Roger Moore did for uh, 12 years prior to Dalton taking over the role. Yeah, Elijah, what do you think about uh, Bond, Bond's turn as a character in this movie? I think it's great. And I think, you know, I think for everything that I just said about, you know, the that you should never underestimate, uh, you know, somebody who's never acted before, I also think that... Uh, on the converse, uh, you know, if you have a character that maybe is not the most well fleshed out, that sometimes it can help to drop in somebody who is, you know, a Shakespearean brilliant actor. And I mean, that is quite literally, I mean, Timothy Dalton is a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. And you can see in his career places where the people who have been making the things he's in have just been like, I don't, this character is not, you know, not going to be great. Let's just drop in Timothy Dalton. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden it becomes a, you know, I think that's the case in, you know, I love, love, love Penny Dreadful. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Great TV show, but I could totally see Malcolm Murray in that show being a, a, a non-entity being a character that's literally just there for exposition dumps. But John Logan decided 
what if we just put Timothy Dalton in there instead? And all of a sudden that character becomes like one of the most dynamic and interesting parts of that show. And I think that this equally is important in this movie. Although I would say that, that whereas on her Majesty's secret service was this like almost an accident, just a perfect storm of all these weird factors, you know, kind of coming together. Um, I think license to kill was a hundred percent intentional. I think yeah. That, that John Glenn and, uh, you know, I think that the people involved in making this movie knew exactly what they wanted. And I think that's no more apparent than at the beginning, uh, you know, at Felix Leiter's wedding, where uh, I think the, his wife's, his new wife's name is Delia, right? Deli or Delia or something. Yeah. Delia, yeah. It's, you know, she, um, she gives Bond her garter stocking, which is, you know, supposed to be this kind of sign of like, oh, maybe you'll be next. <laughs> yeah. And there's a very somber moment where he's like Bond, like Timothy Dalton's Bond just looks like really morose. And then, you know, Delia goes and asks Felix, like, Why, what's up with him? And Felix is like, oh, he was married once. You know, it, uh, it didn't end well. Like, it's it's this very vague implication. But if you've just watched On Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know exactly what they're reaching for at that moment. And I think that shows just what kind of intentionality went into this movie and into, uh, you know, p- uh, God, positioning. I didn't even think of that. I, 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 I let that moment went like totally over my head as I was watching it. I can't believe, cause I, I watched on her majesty's secret service first. I don't know why I didn't even <laughs> like really think back to that at the end there. Probably just cause like these are different bonds and whatever. Totally, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's, and it seems so worlds apart, but yeah. I, I find it very hard to believe that that was not an intentional oh, reference. Definitely. Yeah. That, you know, Timothy Dalton, was positioned to be in a way this kind of spiritual successor to George Lazenby's bond, uh, you know, to the honor, to specifically the on her Majesty's secret service bond. And I think there is so many choices made in this movie that are brilliant little inversions of things that, uh, you know, were set up on, Ma- on her Majesty's secret service down to the name. I mean, on her Majesty's secret service, the name is about his dedication mm-hmm. to the job and it being challenged. And this movie is, very much again it's on uh, you know license to kill is another thing where the the terminology is a reference to bond you know uh, the other movie titles are different degrees of puns and inappropriate and, and you know references to villains or whatever but on her majesty's secret service and license to kill both specifically reference elements of of what it means to be a double o agent and i think this movie again just it's totally about that that part of it about who bond is and um you know i think everything from those small decisions to the way that timothy dalton plays that character i think just i think it makes it what makes it one of the best bond films certainly yeah one of the things that i also kind of liked about he he try he tries to resign in honor Honor majesty's secret service too and they just like don't let him uh, and, which and it's funny here he just does he actually go, he just straight up goes for it and one thing I actually kind of I appreciated about it was that I mean I like the idea uh, and the choice of having Bond like go rogue like that but at the same time I appreciated that it didn't dwell that much on like them actually trying to hunt him down like it, it eventually happens and he runs into someone that's trying to track him down at the end but like I I've, I always talk about like whether it be like in 
uh, in uh, Mission Impossible uh, Rogue Nation, Fallout, Fallout, and Fallout, where there's like it spends, it feels like it spends like 25 minutes of like Jeremy Renner and Alec Baldwin talking to Congress, and I just like roll my eyes like every time I went back to that. It's like I don't, I get it, like he's doing stuff you don't like him to do, but I don't need to spend this much of the movie doing that. Or I don't know if you guys are big fans of 24 back in the day. That was a big, a big event oh, yeah. for my family back whenever 24 aired. But it felt like you had to spend at least an hour of every day, um, or at least an hour of every season on like everyone trying to like convince that jack has turned against the country even if like <laughs> the first the previous five seasons have already proven that jack never actually goes against the country we always have to devote a good chunk of every season to them thinking that jack is against the country and i'm like look i don't need you to guys put this effort into this so i kind of appreciated that like well yes we knew that james was uh he, he was going against the crown's orders at the same time we didn't have to like keep being reminded of that the entire movie and like we, we could just like keep moving forward in the story so i appreciate it as that was handled because i can think of like even more examples other than those two off the top of my head where certain entertainment just like, kind of gets in its own way by like trying to remind us that like yes they're off they're off book and i so i was fine with it and we just got to kind of like move on with it uh which, which, which was fine um another interesting thing though you guys because you both of you mentioned i'm not as familiar with timothy dalton outside of the bond movies i i, I kind of just looked at his filmography as you guys were talking and i realized i he, i guess he's just a bit of a blind spot for me i agree that he is a very good actor based on the two movies that i watched at the same time i think it's funny that i made the point that it was interesting that they that they paired uh that they paired Lazenby with like an actress that could really act because i don't know if they they kind of went the other way in this movie i would say with, with these actresses i mean particularly the 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 one that plays lupe I, I she really wasn't as much of an actress and really not as much of a character and it felt like maybe this is just like this is like a huge step back in that department for me with like the female characters they paired him with and if you had just kind of had some actor that who knows maybe wasn't up to the task like spending a lot of time on screen with these characters these other female characters they didn't write that well maybe this movie isn't as watchable that was just a thought i had yeah i mean talisa soto who plays plays lupe you know, I, I, I might be inclined to say that some people of our generation would be more familiar with her from her turn as Katana in the Mortal Kombat movie, where she oh. has to do significantly less acting, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. um, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, again, this is if there was a downside to this movie, it is that we're just reminded of how uh, Bond girls are chosen a lot of the time. Um, and it's just kind of. It's on a, a basis of flipping through. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I think in my mind, I sort of see, you know, Broccoli and the other producers sort of like looking through an Ikea catalog, essentially. Oh, it's just like. Probably. But, but I mean, I, I didn't even necessarily come come across. Uh, whoever, what's the, who's the actress that played Bouvier? Is it Terry Lowell. Terry Lowell. Yeah, I didn't think that she wasn't a good actress. I just thought, like, man, it seems like you act- she might actually be up to the task, and you-, you didn't really do a good job by her, was kind of my thought as I was watching it. In that first scene in that, that beachside bar or whatever it is where they, they where they meet, and then they have to fight their way out of it, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm actually kind of enjoying this character so far. And then, like, she, like, sleeps with Bond five minutes as they get on that boat, and then is, like, a scorned lover when he pays attention to another woman in the line of work. And I'm like... And, and again, I, I I I hate to like just jump in after I you guys started off being positive, and I I, I like the movie, but it was just like a thing that kind of took me out of the movie a couple points where it's like, look, you guys had the potential to like have this really really impressive CIA agent female character, which 
something you hadn't done a lot of up until that point. And then you kind of don't know what to do with this character after you give her a cool introduction. And all of a sudden she's just like a jealous high school, school girl, school girl. Like you got, I feel like you could have done more with this, this specific character here and actually had her like, uh, contribute in more ways than she ultimately did. And said, she's spends half her time on screen being jealous of Lupe. And it's like, I, I, I it kind of really rubbed me the wrong way. I, I see it kind of the same way as the man with the golden gun, almost where there was so much focus on, bond and the villain and the relationship that they have throughout the movie that the bond girls were clearly meant to be an afterthought so i didn't particularly mind that i don't disagree with anything you said um i think it's also a bit of an issue in the living daylights actually so that is not really a strength of the dalton era in general but i do think that the few scenes that they do have you get the sense that it's not really something that they thought through all that much right it's just something that needs to be in the Bond movie because it is a Bond movie and there needs to be some kind of Bond girl, which is sometimes also the sense I get in uh, both Quantum of Solace and Skyfall, actually, uh, where they just kind of wrote the entire movie and then at the end they realized, oh, I guess maybe we do need to have uh, (laughs) some female characters in here other than M. And License to Kill kind of struck me in the same way where they were too busy focusing on uh, everything else that was going on where they just never really considered how we're going to flesh out uh, that particular aspect of the movie. Well, so you talked about that, like them spending a lot of time on his relationship with the villain. And uh, you mentioned how it is interesting that like in some ways, maybe like he might be similar to uh, Sanchez. At the same time, I found myself thinking, I I, I don't think this is any kind of bias on my part because I like Benicio Del Toro as an actor in other movies I'd seen him in and I hadn't seen the guy that played Sanchez. It, It almost just jumped off the screen though, like how much better of an actor Benicio Del Toro was than the guy that played Sanchez like he was like really menacing and just like a few minutes of screen time where I mean maybe there's some interesting things about the Sanchez character but I don't know if that guy brought much to the table as an actor you've never seen the Goonies yeah man Robert Daffy he's great really he's admitted, <laughs> admittedly and I agree in this movie he's maybe not you know the best but like it's you know, been a uh, while since I've seen the Goonies but is he is he considered and I, I knew he was in it but is he considered like a pretty good actor outside of that Mm. He, he has a type, you know, okay. he, he plays these stiff, uh, you know, um, I feel like we've said that word a lot this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I also noticed he's actually American. Like he's born and raised in the Bronx, apparently. Oh yeah. He's got a but, thick New York accent. So, so, so like maybe the fact that he's tried, it probably didn't help that they tried to make him do some kind of like Mexican, uh, South American accent when he, that's not actually him. Right. I mean, and, and that, yeah, you, you watch something like Die Hard or, um, you know, Predator 2 where he plays much more traditional Robert Davi kind of character. Yeah, you usually talking like, you know, he normally talks like this. That's what Robert <laughs> Davi sounds like. So, yeah, I mean, I agree that I think, you know, Benicio Del Toro, I just... And I guess Benicio has a, a built-in advantage then now that I'm remembering that uh, the, the other guy's from New York because it's like Benicio's actually from Mexico, so it's probably not as hard for him to like, play a guy with the Hispanic accent. Yeah, I mean, I think the only, you know, the downside for Benicio Del Toro is just the timing. I mean, he was, he was like, I think... Or like late mid mid to late twenties. No, he was like twenty when it filmed. I'm pretty sure he was born yeah. in 1968. Yeah, he had like he had never right. So yeah, twenty or twenty one. He had never been. I think he was in like maybe one other thing before uh, he was in License to Kill. So I think they just kind of they went with Robert Davi because at the time Robert Davi had already been in things, kind of yeah. been established. I, I will also say yeah. I mean like I think this is a movie that has great male villains which i know feels kind of weird to say for james bond since uh, you know his villains are almost exclusively male (laughs) villains anyways you know except for the odd female henchwoman here or there but 
I, I do think there's there's a great uh, you know subtext that I may you know, and it's probably not the best place to get, to get in the weeds on that. But like, there's I, I almost want to say there's like a kind of homoerotic subtext to a lot of the interactions between Bond and the villain, you know, which is something that I think they revisited a little bit in Skyfall. But um, you know, they they sort of imply that there's. Uh, it's almost a little bit of like sexual attention between bond and all of his villains. Like, hmm. you know, he kind of, he's got to get physical with these guys. And I think there's no more movie, you know, no, uh, no movie where it's been more apparent in the series up until this point, uh, you know, than this film, than license to kill. Um, Fred, were you rooting for them to kiss? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I think that there is a very like interesting scenario. If you don't have, 16 movies of goodwill of James Bond being the hero. It is kind of, he does get a bunch of appealing offers throughout the movie about making a lot of money and maybe joining up with the dark side, so to speak. I mentioned the man with the golden gun already, but we also briefly talked about it in there where Scaramanga essentially kind of almost implies that Bond isn't making the most out of his career because he could be making a ton of money with his skills. And there is a very real sense here that if Bond wanted to, he could really start working for Sanchez. They do have a pretty good relationship at one point where Bond is able to convince Sanchez that some of Sanchez's other henchmen have started working against him. So he's really in his good graces at a certain point. So if Bond isn't this character that we already know so well, who is obviously never going to move away from this vendetta that he has on behalf of his friend, there is probably a very different movie where Bond eventually ends up teaming up with Sanchez because that is a very appealing prospect for him. And I do think that that is kind of a, like an undertone that uh, is being explored here. Like what if Bond wanted to go down that route? It's never seriously entertained, obviously, but it is an interesting question that is raised here at one point. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Fred, because one of my favorite things in the movie was like actually seeing him try and ingratiate himself to Sanchez. Because as I mentioned, we we're talking about on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So often, like Bond is already well known to these villains, and it's just like even doing him doing that kind of espionage isn't really even an option. They just know him already, and he is so it's cool to see him like actually go undercover at all in a way like that with the main villain in the movie. And I, I, I for a second, I forgot. And I, I had to go back and watch the beginning of the movie. I was like, wait, he doesn't know who Bond is. Cause like he doesn't actually see him when he clips the helicopter. So I was, I had to remind myself of that. Cause I was very confused for a second. I was like, wait, he's James Bond. Doesn't everyone know who he is? It's like, no, not this guy. Uh, so I, I, I actually liked seeing him have to like be undercover for more of an extended period of time. I would say than he often is in these movies though. I guess he did kind of go undercover in honor Majesty's secret service for a while, but like, I guess it's not that unique, but like I Blofeld like kind of figured, figured him out pretty early on. Uh, whereas he got to kind of go on, go on and have more interactions with Sanchez as someone else, I would say. So I, I, I appreciated that. And I just, I, I thought it was just a, a, a different side of the story that, otherwise like i don't know who knows could could have felt a little traditional in some other ways and it just it it it, it made it feel a little uh different from other bond storylines so i appreciated that i'll say this i mean i think it's that's because we're so used to when bond goes undercover in other films he's he's playing someone else he's he's trying to be the genealogy guy and on her majesty's <laughs> secret service or he's trying to be uh you know the, the James Bond, the, you know, universal exports guy, he's never playing himself when he goes undercover until this movie. That's a good point. It's, he's, when he's undercover, I think it's the only time that we see James Bond when he's undercover, but he's not putting on 
any kind of he didn't lie he was like i used to work in british intelligence and at that point he's not working for british intelligence right he's just playing himself it's it is not a full-on lie he's just omitting a lot of details (laughs) essentially and i think that's um it's a unique situation where he can do that as a character and it makes sense um and it works to be off-putting or to be not off-putting it's not the right word to be uh, you know, to, to invert expectations. He's not doing some flashy routine. He's not, uh, you know, flashing fake badges a lot or whatever. He's just, he's just kind of being himself and, and playing, he's playing mind games more than he's playing, you know, a, a role. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what did you guys think about the whole entire, uh, let's last act about like, uh, going into the, uh, going into the compound cult meditation center and just blowing it up and how the movie just kind of like goes on the run from there. Did, did you think that was effective, Fred? I mean, once again, I do appreciate that, uh, there are, there are always those little moments of silliness in every Bond movie in on her Majesty's secret service. It was Blofeld's ridiculous plan here. It's that, uh, Sanchez essentially disguises his operation via this, televangelist who <laughs> kind of pretends to be uh be religious and in reality it's all about uh smuggling drugs so i thought that was kind of funny and that's also the one part where pam gets to sort of reestablish herself as a more important character right where she actually comes in and bails bond out um but i do think it's a great action scene at the end and i also like how uh they pay off the lighter that he gets the lighter, right? Oh, yeah. From the lighter, from, that, the, from the light, the lighter, from the lighters. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like, that's always a, uh, that's a thing. in like most of these movies I've, I, I'm kind of remembering. Cause again, I hadn't watched a lot of these for a while until Fred and I started doing these podcasts was that like Q always shows him some kind of gadget that like you, you've kind of forgotten. And then it kind of comes in handy at the end. And like here it was something that wasn't even given to him as a weapon that like we did what was shown to us in the beginning, but then all of a sudden, Hey, this is, that's the thing that kind of gets the job done in the end. I thought it was a, a funny little twist on that recurring trope in Bond movies. And I thought it was also a nice moment in the sense that in like his very last moment, Sanchez uh, got to realize why Bond didn't take up his very generous offer to join him, mm-hmm. because that's ultimately what it always came down to, that he killed Felix's wife, that he hurt Felix, somebody he's very good friends with. And I like that Bond kind of kept the information to himself until the very end. And that's how Sanchez finds out uh, why he was never going to be able to convince Bond uh, to partner up with him. I think Felix seemed a little too happy at the end, though. Like his wife hadn't died that long ago. He was like yeah, right. ce- celebrating on the phone with Bond, like they just their favorite team had just won the Super Bowl or something. Uh, it's like, re- come on, Felix, like show a little more remorse, or not not remorse, but a, a little more grief. Uh, 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 I, I, another thing I thought was funny about that whole entire part was that like Sanchez just like just at. Pit, pit, like just, just pissing off that uh, his underling that was just the, like the numbers guy and he just kept doing stuff that like just like cost him more and more money it's like yeah I'll, I'll blow up that one tanker that's like filled with my drugs or I will uh, I mean who knows if like I we have to leave all this other stuff behind and he just it kept driving that guy crazy until the guy just blew his top and he shot him like I I, I don't know I, I got a, I got a real kick out of that uh, Elijah did you have any final thoughts on the last act yeah I would say so I mean I feel like we watch this ending, you know, the whole the, the televangelist thing and the yeah. whole compound. Uh, and I think we it, it rightfully seems a little ridiculous, but I feel like 
and maybe I'm going out on a bit of a limb here, but I feel like if we transpose that ending into the middle of a season of Narcos, it would be totally normal. And I think it's just because, you know, it's a Bond film that we get this overwrought sense of like, oh, you know, this is this is that, that kooky Bondness again, this great big roundabout plan. But at the end of the day, I mean, that is drug lords actually did that. They used like all kinds of organizations as fronts, uh, you know, for their for whatever it was that they were doing for smuggling or money laundering or things like that. And I think that this movie is obviously very timely and specific in what it's trying to talk about, uh, you know, coming out in 1989, kind of at the height of the American war on drugs, uh, you know, with a lot of South American countries involved. Um, and I don't think it's any uh, I don't think it's any uh, coincidence that a lot of the movie takes place in, uh, you know, in the Keys and in kind of in South Florida, which is was one of the first stopping off points of you know the drug trade in the U.S. Uh, in that time period. And I think it's I think it's interesting because you know Bond t- typically deals with these international world-ending problems, um, but there is also always an overtone of you know for Queen and Country. That's kind of why he does what he does. And then this is a movie where he goes rogue and goes, you know, to to avenge his friend. But he's dealing with a very American problem at the time. And I don't think that's an accident Hmm. that there is. I don't think there's an accident. that There's this implicit commentary being made that, you know, there's there's definitely there's something to examine about a British secret agent, you know, ditching his code and ditching his, you know, his, his, his overarching ideals so that he can go help out the Americans fight the war on drugs, basically. Like, I think, I don't think there's any coincidence that that movie that this, you know, license to come came out in 1989 and it has this very visceral personal tone to it, um, about the war on drugs. And I think that's, that's implicit all the way down to the ending where it is, again, you guys have already said it, it's brought back up that this is a personal vendetta. It's more than just an austere, you know, uh, you know, uh, bird's eye view, world end scenario kind of thing. It's a very specific thing. And, I mean, it's part of what makes the ending great uh, beyond just the symbolism of the lighter. I think just the, the, the entire ending sequence with, you know, it's up until that point in 89, that, that's like, that was one of the most brutal like James Bond moments, you know, just lighting Sanchez on, you know, like beating Sanchez up, you know, just that, that whole fight scene. And it's, it's very unassuming if you think about it. It's like, you know, a lot of, well, cause there've been a lot of sharks down. eating people in this movie up until then. So <laughs> sharks eating people, people getting blown up and in, in general bond endings before and after this movie take place in, in moments of, in time and in places that are, epic in proportion whether it's in you know a volcano layer or what or you know after this movie where uh in goldeneye you know the fight on on the on the satellite dish like there's these epic moments whereas license to kill ends on the side of a road somewhere (laughs) their epic showdown is in the middle of nowhere on like the side of a highway the truck gets like run off the highway and it's just like in a ditch somewhere and bond gets out and just like beats this guy senseless and then lights him on fire and, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a moment that's very shocking and very unexpected at the time for Bond. And I think there's a whole lot to examine, uh, you know, with that context of, you yeah. know, him 
fighting for a friend, fighting fighting the war on drugs for a friend, basically. Yeah, it's cool. I guess another you know another thing that ties this movie together together to on Her Majesty's Secret Service, I guess, is that. And I guess maybe things like you guys could both intimated it kind of maybe started changing and it was a, a sign of things to come with some of the Craig movies. But both those movies, they just Bond has something that is personal to him on the line, I guess, in a way that like a lot of the other movies aren't. It's just not really the case. And that that alone probably just does a lot for the tone. I mean, just him just doing it for a friend as opposed to just doing it for the country. And I and you you really do kind of feel that in him and yeah maybe it took a actor as as good as timothy dalton for that to for to really tackle that uh that subject matter but it i think it works really well um fred do you have any other final thoughts yeah i mean we briefly talked about the possibility of what would have happened if lazenby had signed on for more movies and if he had stuck around and i think did they want dalton to keep coming back i didn't read about that I don't remember exactly whether License to Kill just didn't make enough money or if people were just too concerned about the tone becoming too dark. Oh, okay. But there was a pretty long hiatus after License to Kill uh, until GoldenEye came out. I right. think six years, if I'm not mistaken, which is, I think, still the longest uh, interval between Bond movies. Hey, with uh, COVID, it, it, it could end up being second oh, place. Oh, yeah, No Time to Die is well on its way to beat <laughs> that record. Um, but I think it's a shame because I really think that they set that set the tone here for a very different kind of bond after Roger Moore left the role, obviously. And again, living the living daylights is one of my favorite bond movies. The only reason why I like it a bit more than license to kill is because, um, I like some of the action scenes better. And I think ultimately bond is always going to be just a little bit, at least about the humorous tone for me. And I think the living daylights is a little bit better about that than license to kill. Um, but those are two fantastic movies, like two of the very best in the Bond franchise. And I would have been very intrigued to see what Dalton would have made um, of the part going forward. And don't get me wrong, I love Goldeneye, also one of my favorites. But I really do think it's a shame that he didn't get another shot at this because uh, the groundwork that they laid with those two was uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, Elijah, any final thoughts on License to Kill? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think um, Bond is... Ultimately, he is, you know, a combination of different traits and stereotypes. You know, at, at this, at, at, at the point of *License to Kill*, I think it's the 16th film. Um, you know, that that, that it was made by Eon. Um, it's the 16th film. You know, at that point, and so we've come to have these certain expectations about, uh, you know, who Bond is, and I think. It says a lot if you can make a Bond movie where the audience doesn't realize that those things are being tested or inverted. And I think that's why License to Kill has kind of been remembered the way it has, that when it came out, you know, people were like, well, this is dark and, you know, I guess it's good. But, you know, it was kind of a generalized whatever. And then it's sort of grown over time. And I think that's because a good movie is the kind of movie that you come back to to reassess. Um, and that it's not that there's anything wrong with, say, Dr. No, which is, you know, maybe not the greatest Bond film of all time, but it's a fun film that people go back to. But you go back to it because you know what it is. You go back to it because it's familiar. I think License to Kill and Timothy Dalton's films in general, I think, you know, The Living Daylights uh, as well, are films that are great to come back to because the context keeps changing because what you can take away from it, uh, you know, keeps evolving. 
And, you know, I think when you look at the what Bond has become uh, under Daniel Craig, um, it's it's not only easy to go back and see where those foundations were laid, but I think it's important to do it as well. Um, you know, just to kind of get a great sense for how bond has been shaped by, you know, his history. That's really well said. Cause I, I mean, I, I've seen all the Craig movies, but I think talking about these movies that we just discussed, it kind of put in perspective for me, just how, just where, just where some of their influences came from and how, it's kind of set a new standard in a way for what people expect. So I appreciate you summing it up like that. Uh, Fred, before we sign off, any other uh, recent streaming recommendations you want to make to the listeners? Yeah. So uh, on a little bit of a sad note, I guess, uh, since we last talked, we've had a whole bunch of uh, very important people pass away in Hollywood. Uh, two of those uh, I would like to mention and uh, just Briefly, briefly mention uh, what I would recommend you watch. The first one is Olivia de Havilland, who passed away at age 104, uh, probably the last remaining star of uh, the golden age of Hollywood from the 1930s and 40s. I know it's become a bit controversial for very valid reasons, but Gone with the Wind is back on HBO Max. It's a movie you simply have to have watched uh, to get a feel for like what the 1930s in American cinema were all about. Uh, it's on HBO Max, and so is The Adventures of Robin Hood, which is a much more lighthearted film uh, than Gone with the Wind. And unfortunately, those are really the only two that I found from her that are currently streaming for free online. I was very disappointed that the Criterion channel didn't actually have any of her movies at the moment. Hmm. Um, the other one is, of course, uh, Ennio Morricone, who passed away at age 91, uh, one of the great Italian composers. Um Primarily known for his westerns, but the one I really do want to recommend, if you haven't seen it, is Cinema Paradiso, uh, which you can also stream on HBO Max. Uh, one of uh, truly the most just beautiful and uh, inspiring films about cinema. It's relatively low-key in a lot of ways uh, about the story that it tells, but the music is just absolutely gorgeous, and I think it really gives you a good idea of uh, what Morricone was able to conjure up in, if I'm not mistaken, about 300 films uh, that 300? he scored throughout. Jeez, I didn't realize there was that many. Yeah, it's a very, he had a very prolific career. I didn't realize there was that many either until I read some of his obituaries. So those are some of the classics. Uh, Elijah, if you want to jump in, I'm sure you can actually recommend some more obscure ones that you're familiar with. But those are the, uh, I guess, most important ones from those two that I would recommend that you can stream right now. Yeah, um... So I, my favorite Olivia de Havilland film is uh, The Heiress from 1949, directed by William Wyler. She gives a uh, ex- exceedingly dark and very uh, – I'd say it's a, it's a Henry James novel that it's adapted from, so you know it's going to be a little bit spooky. Um, and she definitely plays her central role in that film very well. She won an Academy Award for it. And uh, I think it's not – a. it's a it, – it, you can – you know, obviously buy the Criterion Blu-ray edition. Um, I think it'll it'll be coming to the Criterion channel fairly soon. But for as far as, uh, you know, Olivia de Havilland goes, I feel like that's a very underseen film and uh, one that people should definitely get their hands on if they can. I actually watched uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly for the first time like a month before Morricone passed. And 
I mean, I'd obviously seen a handful of his others before then, and or probably more than a handful. I'm just, I don't have a list of his filmography in front of me, but I'd seen uh, Cinema Paradiso too. But like, I mean, I'm, I'm not good at necessarily like remembering the scores after I've watched a movie. And sometimes I don't really think about it enough as I'm watching them. But like, I don't know. I just, I, I think it's good and the bad and the ugly scores is pretty incredible in a way that it didn't like, it enhances the movie in a way that like still sticks with me two months later. And uh, I can only say that about like a handful of movies for me. And that's more on me than the movies themselves. I just need to become a more sophisticated watcher of film, but like he was great. Uh, Elijah, any other recommendations you want to make for other things you've been watching recently? Uh, other things I've been watching recently. God, I haven't, I haven't been that's, watching a lot. I've, uh, <laughs> yeah. I will plug, of course, uh, HBO Max streaming service now available. Um, Where you can watch a lot of these old movies we're talking about because they have an incredible library. Certainly, yeah. yeah you can watch a lot of old movies there. And um, I think one of the next things up, uh, we're debuting Lovecraft Country on uh, August 16th on HBO Max, which I know a lot of your listeners will probably be excited for. Um, is a, a new, the trailer was good. Yeah, it's a new drama horror series from uh, the mind of Jordan Peele um and matt ruff and it's uh set in 1950s say alternative history uh, jim crow south um and follows atticus black jonathan majors and journey smollett bell playing letty uh, as they travel uh across the country and in, in the south and encounter some truly horrifying uh experiences um so that'll be coming out on august 16th on hbo max Gotcha. Well, cool. I, I don't have a ton of movies to recommend myself as to what I've been watching because I watched a lot of TV. The only movie I watched since I recorded the episode last week with Josh Brown was I, I was just like, I need to watch something on Criterion. It's been too long. I need to actually like get back on there. I, I watched uh, Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together, which I uh, which I really enjoyed. It probably too real for some people to watch during quarantine if you ask me but uh, but but i uh i i thought i thought it was really good it's really interesting i couldn't think of like a ton of other movies and i'm sure I, there's a lot of queer cinema that i'm not familiar with that took place before that but it, it was one of the i haven't seen too many like movies about like gay couples from then or earlier and it was also interesting that like so much of the movie you aren't even thinking about the fact that these are two gay men that are probably closeted to most other people because it's like so focused on them and it, there are points where you take a step back and it just kind of like the movie hits you on another level because you aren't really thinking about that so i but the performances are really good and the i mean he's obviously a really great filmmaker and i liked a lot of the stuff visually in that movie too and i and i started uh i started justified two nights ago uh which is one that like people have always recommended to me uh, if someone had just told me, because I'm a big Deadwood fan, if someone's like, why don't you watch a show about Seth Bullock with a sense of humor, then like, who knows? Like, I probably would have watched it a lot, well, much more sooner than I did, but because uh, Timothy Oliphant's great, but I, I, I've been thoroughly enjoying it, and I ever, I'd, I'd always been scared to start it because apparently season two's the best. Uh, I, I know Elijah watched it. I don't know if Fred has, but when I hear like season two's the best of a six season show, it's like hard to get motivated to start it. But like, I just, I'm like, look, I have the time to do it now. I may as well. I mean, there's only so many like shows that are that long that I haven't started that I want to start. So, and I, I watched like seven episodes on Sunday, so I'm, I'm very in and I'm enjoying it a lot. So, uh, so yeah. I will also, I will also just quickly interject. Um, cause you said you wanted to watch stuff on Criterion channel. This, it just uh, popped into my mind. Um, their uh, August collection that they just put up is Australian New Wave. Hmm. Um, so, like uh, a lot of uh, some films that you probably have seen or heard of, like Mad Max, uh, maybe Gallipoli. You may have seen those. Um, I'm actually I'm actually watching uh, Year of Living Dangerously right now. And that's a yeah, that's a great one. And uh, so there's some uh, yeah, like the Year of, the Year of Living Dangerously uh, and the Last Wave and Walkabout. 
um, are some from that collection that I cannot recommend enough. They're just uh, really excellent, excellent movies. Really uh, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, intrepid uh, and different for the time when they were released. Um, yeah, I, I, Fred, have you seen Walkabout? I think I might have watched that in class at one point, actually, because really? we read the book my freshman year of high school. Yeah. Interesting. Well, our, our friend Ben uh, recommended that to me like a few years ago, and I and I, it was, I really liked it. So I, if, if listeners are looking for anything on Criterion, I can I can vouch for that. Guys, uh, thanks again for joining. This is fun. We're going to have at least one more Bond episode, so everyone stay tuned for that. Hey, Fred, do you want to plug your letterbox before you go? Yeah, sure. Uh, do follow me on Letterboxd. It's Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Updated regularly, so please give me a follow. The podcast is on Twitter at RewindMoviePod. The Gmail is the RewindMoviePod at gmail.com. Unfortunately, it looks like we're still locked out of the theaters for a bit longer, so we're going to be still talking about more old stuff. So I'm taking recommendations, and you can also follow me on Twitter, Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. Same thing on Letterboxd. Thanks again to Fred and Elijah for joining me. Thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.